I was diagnosed with PTSD in the early years. And I found myself, you know, eventually waking up in the morning and the first thing I could think of really was the, the cruelty that I had witnessed. So I did have therapy for that. And I have learned over the years to live alongside suffering and not immersed in suffering. It's sometimes difficult to remember that all animals were once wild animals. Those everyday creatures we fill our lives with. Dogs, cats, chickens, cows, pigs, even mink. They were all wild before we domesticated them and then bred, bred, bred the wild out of them. And then we turned them into pets, pork, eggs, nuggets, steaks, and furs. So what's all this got to do with apes, you are asking? Over the past couple of seasons of Talking Apes, we've occasionally highlighted wildlife trafficking and the bushmeat trade and the direct impact on apes and primates, but also the role it plays in habitat loss and disease transfer. Yet for many of us, those seem like far away things over there somewhere, the world we don't really come in contact with. On the other hand, a global pandemic has shown a spotlight on the wet markets and the global trafficking of animals, whether wild or from factory farms, and the looming nightmare they pretend. In this episode, I wanted to talk to somebody who has spent a career documenting our relationship with the animals we eat and wear, a perspective from within the worlds most of us know exist, but often decide to ignore or conveniently keep beyond our purview. In Season 2, Episode 9, I'm joined by Joanne MacArthur. Joanne is a Canadian photojournalist, humane educator, animal rights activist, and author. She is known for her We Animal Project, which is documenting human relationships with animals, wild animals we've domesticated to meet our own wants and needs. A decade into the project, it has evolved into We Animals Media, where now over 90 documentarians invest their imagery in the hopes of shifting our age-old narrative around our relationship to other lives on this earth. The work of those photojournalists is highlighted in Joanne's 2020 book, Hidden, Animals in the Anthropocene. Joanne was also the subject of the critically acclaimed 2013 documentary, Ghosts in Our Machine, which followed her as she documented the plight of abused and exploited animals and advocated for their rights as sentient beings. Over the past decade, Joanne has been acknowledged with scores of awards for her unflinching photography, documenting our disregard and insensitivity to the other lives we share this planet with. While apes have not been her documentary focus, one photo in particular, that of the gorilla Pickin, with her keeper Apollinaire, created in 2009, continues a decade later to win awards, connecting her work and her cause to our relationship with animals. We will discuss it and many, many others on this episode of Talking Apes. You're listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Talking Apes is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and through our Patreon membership program. If you'd like to support Talking Apes, you can do so by logging on to our website at www.talkingapes.org and check out all the options for how you can help ensure a future of the kind of conversations you hear here on Talking Apes. 
And now my guest, Joanne MacArthur. Hi, Joe, and welcome to Talking Apes. I'm just really, really excited to have you so on. So am I. So happy to be here. There's lots to talk about. The great shame of this, because it's audio, not visual, and which is really weird for both of us, because we're both visual people as filmmakers and photographers, is that what you can't see is this is one of the loveliest smiles on the face of the earth. And and uh, on Joe, not me. Um, so it's really great to see that smile. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we we are seeing each other. We're talking in video. And uh, yes, you're definitely getting big smiles. I'm very happy to be here. And there's nothing I love more than talking about animals and photography. You know, I've seen, I don't know, a couple dozen images of you, photographs of you over the years. And you always have that absolutely lovely smile and very bright eyes. And you look like such a joyous, happy person. And yet the work you do, a lot of people would call some of the most depressing work on the planet. How do you maintain those, that balance? Because I know you've, I'm doing all the talking here for a second, but I want to set this up so people understand. There's a couple of things. One is you have often referred to your work and others have referred to it as very much like a war photographer. You actually suffered from PTSD uh, from some of it and may still have issues with that. But yet you see these pictures of you and you have this absolutely lovely, joyous smile on your face. And how do you do that? (laughs) Yes, I've, I've now been to over 60 countries to document our very fraught relationship with animals. Uh, for people new to my work. Uh, so I've been doing this for over 20 years. And I was diagnosed with PTSD PTSD in the early years. I was just so newly immersed in pigs in gestation crates, hens in cages where they couldn't stretch their wings and so on. And I found myself, you know, eventually waking up in the morning and the first thing I could think of really was the, the cruelty that I had witnessed. So I did have therapy for that. And I have learned over the years to live alongside suffering and not immersed in suffering. And so while I know that there's suffering happening every minute of every day, that's literally my job to to know about it and to document it. I only have this one short life to live and I want to live a happy life. And I really, really do. I'm I'm innately happy as well. And um, and so you know, because my work is is what it is, I really do have to remember that and be mindful and and be joyful. And it's uh, and I'm successful in doing that. I'm also happy because the work that I do creates change, and I see the effects of that every single day with my team at We Animals Media, with a number of people who reach out to us every single day. Uh, the work that I I do is a piece of the puzzle when it comes to changing the big picture for animals. And um, that's how I put one foot in front of the other every single day. Well, that kind of leads me into what was going to be my original question was, I mean, you started this journey as a photographer, um, I'm guessing, and, and, and then transitioned into what, I mean, what I guess you call human animal conflict photography. Um, I mean, I've seen a number of different words used um, in different articles and things. How would you describe it? Yeah, thanks for that question, because we did, in fact, 
create a genre, a new genre of photography, and we call it animal photojournalism. And we did this because wildlife and conservation photography excludes the animals that I photograph. Portraits, uh, pet portraits, uh, humanitarian work, photojournalism, conflict photography, they all exclude the billions of animals that we use every day and who we fail to see. And they deliberately exclude those animals. Uh, for example, when you submit work to wildlife competitions, it states in the guidelines you cannot uh, submit photos of domesticated animals, but their stories are so important. And th their stories are important because they're sentient, just as sentient as many of us other animals. And so their stories need to be told because we're treating them in such an abysmal way. And so the main tenet really of animal photojournalism is that it's inclusive and we're making space for that. And it's it's been welcomed. You know, I thought, who am I to create a, a genre of photography? I'm going to get I'm going to be the laughing stock. But in fact, I'm being interviewed about it all the time. People are calling themselves animal photojournalists. And um, I've been told by many edit editors that it's something that's needed. So we're really proud of of that achievement at the organization I founded, which is We Animals Media. Well, and and that kind of backs me up to the film that you were the subject of um, called Ghost in the Machine, which is 2013, I think. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about being the subject of it. You're usually behind the camera yeah. like I am. And and then all of a sudden now in this film, you're the vehicle by which we explore, uh, you know, issues around the world with animals that are in in these factory farms and, and other places. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about those reverse roles being, being the subject of a film versus being the photographer. Well, even ahead of that, I decided that I was going to be an outspoken and visible animal rights activist. Um, not someone who wore a mask, not someone who, who sort of had to hide uh, behind it. Um, a lot of people who do investigative work like me do have to stay anonymous for their own protection. But I wanted to say, listen, I go to these places because it's important. And, you know, so I had, um, it's important. And I want people to see like me, my face, and you've mentioned my smiling face. Like I want people to see a really happy representative of animal advocacy and uh, a happy animal rights representative in the journalism world. And so on. So ahead of that film, The Ghosts in Our Machine, I I had decided, okay, like I'll I'll be in front of the camera, not uh, not just behind. And Liz Marshall, the director, did a stunning job. Uh, it's beautifully directed, beautifully shot. She pain she does everything she does really painstakingly and and well. And so how fortunate for me that I got to be the subject of her film. She wanted a, a human protagonist. And so that was me. Uh, I will say that uh, the film really stands the test of time because it's it's so well done. And these issues are, you know, just as prevalent as they were 10 years ago. I've changed, though. I always tell people, you know, I'm so glad you're seeing the film or you plan on seeing the film. But, um, you know, I, I change how I how I talk with people. I change how I address the media. I changed how I do humane education. So I feel a little shy about that, you know, but uh, but it's OK. It's It's a fantastic film. Well, I was talking with our assistant producer, Demelza, um, before you jumped on. And 
I was talking about how it's it's 10 years old and at one t- at once it's relevant now but at the same time th- it, that's changed um because I think when it even though it was only a decade ago I don't think people were listening in the same way that I think a lot of people are now listening um so could you want to just talk about that a little bit and talk about how you've changed in communicating what you do well, you're absolutely right things have changed uh things are moving slowly uh considering the urgency of all the suffering and yet on the grand scale of things we are seeing huge developments uh for example in animal law a lot of people are flocking to animal law now we are seeing a lot more plant-based eating we are seeing humane education um you know teaching people to be a good and compassionate and an ethical person and we're also seeing the door opening on these stories that i tell in the film we see my um my agency saying you know this is really good work but there's no place for it but there is a place for it now and that is in part because it is just unavoidable for us to recognize that the stories aren't only important for the animals themselves ethology teaches that the behavioral the study the behavioral <laughs> la 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 uh, ethology is the study of animals uh, their behavior in the natural environment so we're seeing a huge growth in this which proves scientifically that animals are very complex and and interesting so with that um with what we see in the the pollution caused by industrial farming which also causes climate change we also know deforestation you know is clearing forests in part so that there's grazing land for animals there's so many reasons for us to pay attention to the animal story and that's my favorite part of this is that you know um my contribution and that of everyone telling animal stories is really making advances and so the animal advocacy space i think is is a really exciting place to be right now because we're seeing changes i will also say that cha- things are also changing for the worse uh depending on the economy the country the culture we're seeing a, a growth in eating animals but uh we are also seeing a growth in plant-based eating like <laughs> so lots of advance advances a lot of setbacks all the more reason for as many of us as possible to be on board creating small and larger changes for animals globally yeah it's interesting it feels like we're at a time and i guess that's part of what i was referring to we're at a time where People saw these as like separate rivers and all these rivers, whether it's social justice or, you know, animal rights or, you know, the bigger climate change. Um, it, it feels like all those rivers are beginning yeah. to merge into one big river. And I think people are beginning to see those connections. So that's I mean, that's what I, I guess I was referring to in that even though 10 years has gone by and it, and the film I think is just as valid now as it was then, but there's a different, a different audience, more of an audience, more participation. Let's talk about that audience a little bit. It's interesting. I heard you speaking at one point that you, the new book you have hidden that the inspiration for that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the inspiration of that was James Natchway's Inferno which is an incredibly powerful book. Um, it's also an, an insanely difficult book to look at. 
I mean, you have to go with your head in the right space to look at some of these images uh, of what we've done to other human beings on the planet. And Hidden is doing the same thing. Well, all your work has, all three of your books, I think, do that. But especially Hidden has done that, that same kind of very hard conscious look at who we are and what we do. How do you talk to people about looking at those images? Well, I want to normalize looking at these images, which is in part why we made a book. People make books when you don't want the message to just flash by on social media or in the news. You want a message, a subject matter to have a permanent home, something historic. Uh, we want to memorialize and and immortalize in in some ways. And so we made this book to say, hey, these stories are important and they're here to stay they are legitimate, they are fact-based, they connect you with the individuals within systems, and, um, and, and making no apologies about it. And um, I think the days are passing where animal advocates are just seen as uh, sentimental, uh, overly empathic, or righteous, and all these things. I mean, animal... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll leave that, that point there. But um, the work is meant to, the book is meant to normalize looking. And w how I talk with people about it is, um, well, luckily, a lot of people want to hear me talk about it. And so people sort of, when they ask that question, they often situate me at the dinner table with maybe 15 people over Thanksgiving and they imagine that I'm sitting with meat eaters and, and what's it like and how do I talk about those people But uh, with those people. But really, I'm talking about my work all day with people who are curious, whether they are the media or whether they're my family. And, um, you know, I, I present this stuff matter of factly. I'm very happy to answer people's questions. I, I love doing that. And I like to meet people where they're at as well. I remember long ago when my mom told me uh, she wanted to sit and like see my face and tell me this thing to my face. And she said, Joe, I want you to know that I have stopped eating pigs. And uh, at the time, I was more of an activist who reacted in the way that I did. And I, I said like, oh, well, you know, that's good. You know, like you could, you know, so what's next? Like you could do more. Like I, I wasn't all, I wasn't much of a cheerleader, but now I'm really different. And I cheerlead every person on every change that they're making. Cause why would you not, you know, people need to be empowered, supported, um, in all of the changes that they make. And so that's how I, that's how I connect with people. I'm, I'm everyone's cheerleader. <laughs> Of course, I want things to move faster, but like people will do what they want. You just need to give them good information, empowering information and and not uh, encourage people to understand that uh, not to have a scarcity mind frame. I remember when I stopped eating animals, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to starve. This is I'll be so unhappy. I won't be accepted socially and all these things. But it's it's not really like that. Before we jump off of that, you said you do this all day long. Does it ever get exhausting? Do you have, is there a, uh, is there a Joe place? I mean, in the, in the film, um, there's the farm sanctuary where you talk about going, is there a Joe happy place where you go, 
I'm exhausted. I am so tired of talking about this because I know I have that for palm oil. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, you know, it's like, okay, I'm tired of going through your pantry cabinet and showing you everything in there that has palm oil in it, you know? Um, no, I don't have a limit for talking about these things. Um, I think where I get tired is uh, worrying, worrying about the sustainability of my organization. We're donor funded, uh, we're grant funded, and um, we have a lot of support and things are going really well. So, so don't get me wrong, but, you know, every NGO has a runway and, you know, we have to make sure that I'm out there fundraising and making sure people are super pumped about what we're doing. So interestingly, those are the things that keep me, you know, on my toes to say the least and a little nervous and uh, but my happy place. Yes. I, I still love farm sanctuary. I have not been since uh, pre pandemic times, but my happy places are, are two places running anywhere, running down at the beach or in the neighborhood. Um, and then being home on my couch with a book and my dog and my boyfriend, <laughs> you know, like that is really ideal. And it's really simple. I think it's, in fact, now that you're prompting me with these questions, I think actually lucky me that my my happy places are so easily accessible. Yeah. We're going to take a short break in my conversation with Joanne MacArthur. But when we come back, we're going to talk about two photos in particular that have been recognized internationally with multiple awards for their they really their deeply touching connection they have to apes like us. But first, I want to check in with assistant producer Demelza Bond. Hey, Demelza, how are you? Hiya, Jerry. I'm really good, thank you. It's actually kind of surreal to be chatting here with Jo today, you know, because her work has been so influential in the animal rights world. You know, even even certain people in my life have been turned to cruelty-free lifestyles just because of her work. So it's amazing to have her here today. Um, also, as, as primate people, as primate conservationists, there is one particular photo that stands out to us and it's so famous within our circle. I'm sure you're going to speak about it today. Um, but it tells a very happy and sad story at the same time and it's certainly my favourite. So I, I really can't wait to hear more about that. Yeah, I um, and we will have that photo on the... Um the sort of sister blog that we put up for Joanne's piece so people can go see that. And I'm, I'll be fascinated to hear the comments that you get um, on our social media feed and, and through our website. Yeah, that's right. We'll certainly make sure to post some of Joanne's best photos through our website. Uh, so check out our blogs. We'll be doing that in the next few days. And while we are on the subject of animal photography, if any of you would like to share your photos with us, especially, you know, particularly photos of primates or great apes, please do so. Head over to our website and send us a photo or connect with us via our social channels. You can find them in the top right hand corner of our website which is talkingapes.org send them over we'd love to chat with you about them and feature them on our instagram stories uh we'd love to hear from you okay and and thanks for all of that and let's actually let's hear what joanne has to say about that photo that you're you're referring to 
I first became aware of a lot of your work um, through a mutual friend, uh, Rachel Hogan, who we've had on the podcast as well. And she runs, she's the director of um, Ape Action Africa's Sanctuary Meifu in Cameroon. And it's your images from there that I first saw. Um, two in particular that put you on the map for more people than a almost any other, I feel like, because of all the awards that they have won. And, and one is a picture of this, and we'll have it on the blog that accompanies this uh, podcast. One is a picture of um, this absolutely dear human being, Apollinaire, who is, he has uh, a young gorilla in his arms in a, in a vehicle. And the other is one of Rachel um, comforting and cuddling uh, a gorilla as well. So can you, for, for a minute, just talk about those images and because they, they solicit something out of people that I think you're after in all the, all the images that you create. Hmm. I think that all of the images that I shoot of people with animals are meant to um, surprise people a little bit and, and show that we can have these kinds of relationships with animals. And in fact, I'm not saying that we should all go out and hug gorillas. And in fact, none of us should really ever have the opportunity to hold or hug a gorilla. Um, nevertheless, many of many animals are currently in sanctuaries needing to be raised, needing human care and love and veterinary care and attention and all the things they need to, to be raised and integrated into their packs the image of Apollinaire and Pickin, who was a, a, a young gorilla at the time. Well, yeah, this, this image has won a lot of awards and I think it's their expressions, you know, you, she's calm. She has this sort of this, this calm look on her face. I won't say it's a smile though. Many of us would interpret it as such because of the curve of her lips um, she's clearly calm at ease in the arms of her beloved caretaker, Apollinaire, and he is looking at her with such tenderness. And, um, and it's an interesting take on the bushmeat trade and the pet trade in Africa, which is the reason all of these apes are at Ape Action Africa. And while we need to see the images of poaching how incredibly awful it is, all of the effects on other, on, on these animals. We also need to see the beauty happening. And, you know, I do hope that it inspires people to go to sanctuaries, not just in Africa, but any kind of sanctuary, even local to you. Sanctuaries are everywhere now and we can go and volunteer, help with the chickens, the cows, the monkeys, the apes, whoever they have, whoever they're looking after there. Um, yeah. And then, um, I have a series called Rachel's Promise, which is that series of Rachel interacting with those very gorillas the day before they were moved to a 200 acre enclosure that she and her team had built. And, um, and they are quite special. I'm not sure, you know, I think people have to see the images and see the, the care and know the story and the story of Rachel's promise. Promise is about her investment of years of her life into creating the best possible space for these individuals who deserve the best that we can give them. Yeah. Did you, did you go to Cameroon to, to I mean, did you go specifically to Mefu? Cause this was done in what? 2009, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I, 
I, I mean, I, I love that question because that question is also about photojournalism. It's about narratives. It's about like just, you know, people often ask about the hows of my images. Really, you just have to get there, save up your money, go with your camera and just be there and see what happens. And the fun thing that I really enjoy about photojournalism is that your best laid plans are not going to happen. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> you get to a sanctuary. So I went to Ape Action Africa to volunteer for six weeks because I wanted to volunteer and, and knowing that I would take a bunch of pictures. I had no idea that I would create a story called Rachel's Promise um, and that it would be seen globally afterwards. And of that story, the main the focus point was the move of these young gorillas to the bigger enclosure. And that took a couple days. It was a really big deal. And I thought, okay, great. You know, here's this story unfolding. Great. The best photos that I'm going to take are the ones where those gorillas are released into the new enclosure. But those were the crappiest pictures because there's, you know, wiring everywhere. There's fencing. Everything happened quickly. Like this was the big moment that I was imagining. Great. Here's my wildlife photographer of the year shot. And it all happened in a flash. And I was like, ah, like, you know, the story didn't work out the way I wanted it at all. But little did I know because I was there every step of the way, you know, staying, staying, going back, going back. I got that image in the car of a Polinaire holding Pickin, which has won many awards. It's been seen globally. So you have to, you have to stick around. I think like that's the glory of photojournalism, like go and have an idea, be flexible and then stay longer. And then when you're tired, stay longer. And when it's raining, stay longer. And you get more material that's going to produce something beautiful. And I'll jump in and say, she is smiling right now. All the time she was describing that, she had this lovely, happy smile on her face. So you know that all that rain, all that stuff that you go through, um, it, it does bring a smile. And especially when you look back and that, that actually, I'm, I'm going to jump to a question that um, I asked you, I sent you a note about, and that was, Walk us through your story process because you're kind of alluding to some of it right there. And and I agree with you completely. I mean, the the things that I have done as a photographer and a filmmaker that have been best is when I, everything else fell apart. All the plans fell apart <laughs> and it just evolved in front of you and you started taking advantage of it. So maybe walk us through what your process is um, as a photojournalist and, and and then how you lay that out in trying to, because you, you must go in, I, I would assume with, you've either heard about something or you go, you have a preconceived idea of what you want to do and then start to build some storyboard. Well, to add, to add on to what I've said about just showing up, that really, really is the main thing. Um, I will, like, I, I don't really storyboard ahead of time. I, I just like to immerse myself. And I think immersion is where you're going to get the best images. And again, to push beyond what your limits are. <laughs> but um, I'm also really curious about people. And I like people. You keep mentioning my friendly face. And uh, that's because I'm I'm just like innately curious uh, about what everyone is doing and why. And 
people love nothing better than to talk about themselves. Really people like an audience, people like feel loved if you're curious about them. And so my way into many situations is to talk with who's there. Who are you? Why do you have this job? Whether you are a zookeeper or a slaughterhouse worker or a sanctuary volunteer, what brought you here? Tell me about yourself. And you just get better pictures when you get to know people and they, and they let you in. Not everyone lets you in, but um, if you have a genuine and authentic curiosity for people, I think that's one of the main doors that, you know, opens to good photojournalism. Many of the places that you have photographed over the years, it was quote illegal for you to be there. I mean, you've, you've literally snuck into the place and filmed what you filmed. How do you explain that to people who, if somebody, you know, you're doing a presentation, somebody stands up in an audience and says, you know, but that's illegal. You're breaking the law. Hmm. Well, I say that there should be not, there should not be laws that condone and protect extreme violence against billions of animals every second of every day. And, um, I don't like lying. I don't like sneaking around. These things are scary and terrible. And yet industries that I go into, like fur farms, all sorts of industrial farms are not open to people for impromptu visits with cameras. And the reason for that is that if we photograph things as they are, consumers are not going to be happy. And a few examples are uh, the high injury and cannibalism rate in fur farms. Uh, another reason is that people don't know that fur bearers are anally electrocuted for their furs. They're gassed. They don't know that piglets in their first weeks of life are vaccinated, tagged, ears clipped, teeth clipped, tails cut off, taken from their mothers. These industries are inherently really, really, really painful for all who are subjected to them. Um, also, you know, cages with hens. And I, I, I do want to give a couple more examples, especially this one. When you go into a massive factory farm for layer hens, you're going to have dead hens in the cages and you're going to have chickens standing on those bodies to alleviate the pain in their feet from standing on cage flooring. Um, so there's a lot there that is hidden from us consumers. And um, not everyone's going to care, but a lot of people will care. And the only way to get these images is to um, obtain them illegally. And that's what investigators have been doing for a very, very long time. Before cameras, it was storytelling, things that need to be exposed. We go to lengths to expose those stories. We, in fact, you know, journalists typically put themselves sometimes in great jeopardy to get a story, to get information that cracks the story opens. And um, yeah, so, so that's what I do. Uh, I'm not, I don't like doing anything illegal, but you know, it's, I'm so used to it now, honestly. And it's just part of my job. Unfortunately, I wish it weren't, but it is. In reference to that, I heard you in an interview talking about feeling like a bit like mama bear protecting your, your creators. Um, some of the people who have the Im images that are, um, in hidden, um, you referenced yourself as Mama Beard to protect them, and some uh, and some of them are anonymous. They do have to be protected. Yeah, we have uh, over. I think um, 
between five and eight people who are the, who are contributing to Hidden have to remain anonymous for their protection. And in fact, I remain anonymous when I'm shooting in my own country for a certain number of years first, because when you're on your own turf, you're more liable to to be prosecuted. Um, yeah, it's different for me. Like if I, you know, jet off to Sweden or to Australia, I can jot, jet in and out, put my name on things and chances of being charged are much less likely. Um, and so I am protective of our contributors and so grateful to them. We have really young, new people who are putting themselves at physical, financial and psychological risk, emotional risk. And we have well-seasoned people too, who, who just keep going back because they care so much. It's really, re I'm really proud of them. What we're referring to, if we hadn't really discussed it, is, is we animals media, which is you've, you've grown from we animals to we animals media, which is how, how many uh, documentarians do you have? Right now at We Animals Media, WAM for short, I love our acronym, um, WAM has about 15 staff, full-time and part-time, and to date we have over 80 people who have contributed work to our stock site. And I'm very proud of our stock site uh, in the service of animal advocates and NGOs globally. We make images freely available to them. And so over 80 contributors have made their work available to, to people helping animals. And um, we are able to give assignments now globally. This project, We Animals, before it was We Animals Media, was me with a camera saving every penny to go everywhere. And now we give assignments. You know, an NGO can come to us and say they want to do an investigation in Thailand or, or in Australia. So we can, we can assign people. And then we manage the images that they produce. And um, we work together to have a marketing plan and a campaign. And, and we do that because we want to be really strategic. When I started, I was chasing every story that was of interest to me, but then the images were ending up way too often just on my hard drive. And then I'd be planning to go on the next trip. And so that's not strategic at all. And, um, so we've changed things a lot and it's, it's pretty exciting because a lot of people use those images. I guess that kind of goes back to my, my question a minute ago about planning out an assignment or storyboard to that. It sounds like there's a, there's maybe a, a bigger umbrella storyboard to what you're trying to do with the agency and, uh, with, you know, with Wham. Yeah. And yeah. With some of the partners we are working with, they want to show, they want to do a supply chain story. So where is KFC, for example, getting their chickens? Uh, where is it being transported? Where is it being raised? And so we do stories like that. They're, they can be kind of hard. Um, and uh, or sometimes it's more broad, like let's take a look at fishing in Indonesia. Uh, what's the industry like? What are the labor practices like? Uh, what is it like for the fish being pulled up from underwater to being, you know, still alive hours later, but frozen or dying on ice and so on? So we um, we make a plan. We make a shot list and uh, we aim to get as much from that shot, shot list list as possible. But then sometimes you really have to change tack because all of a sudden there's no access or you being, you've been chased off somewhere or you've been bitten, stung by hornet bees and your assigned, your people in your assignment are all in a hospital. Uh, <laughs> all sorts I take it that happened. That did happen. <laughs> that happened to our fixer and our videographer and photographer uh, in Vietnam. 
and they all ended up uh, in a hospital. One of them was stung over 40 times because they had to escape a wet market through a back door and go through a marsh. It, it's um, the people who do APJ, animal photojournalism, yeah, are just so driven. And uh, I don't want to scare people off from it. You know, you're not going to get <laughs> hornet stung just because I've told this story. But um, yeah, there's all sorts of risks. And yeah, it's in part why I'm so proud of everyone because people just keep going back. They're so determined. Photojournalists are so determined. Like war photographers and, and like such social justice photographers, uh, you know, civil rights and other things like that. I mean, you have to be driven. It has to have passion, but you also have to have the joy and the fun because it otherwise you put a bullet in your head. I mean, it seriously, it can get really hard sometimes. And if you're not, if that passion and that joy and that fun about doing what you're doing, and as you referred to earlier, um, you, you wouldn't keep doing it. That's right. And I, I like that you continue to frame this in comparison to civil rights and war photography. Uh, I fundamentally believe that anyone who is sentient deserves to live free from harm. And that's why I work so hard on behalf of non-human animals, because that needs to be understood in the world as well. It was interesting in doing, you know, doing some of the background stuff for this conversation. I, one of the things that struck me was you, I mean, most people would say you're working on domestic animals, um, throughout this. They all started as wild animals at one point. They weren't domestic until we made them domestic. I uh, mean, good point. Ch chickens were running around as jungle fowl, three different types of jungle fowl in India. And they still are. I was trying to think, how do I ask you about hope? And it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, I don't know. I get tired of it sometimes. It's this kind of, um, I mean, Ra Rachel has a great, Rachel Hogan, who we've talked about earlier, has a great one. She said, um, when I was recording some interview stuff with her, she once said, you know, people used to come up to me all the time and say, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this work? And she said, you know, I used to try to answer it. And then finally I got so sick and tired of that question. I said, no, the question is, why aren't you doing anything? <laughs> and, and, and it's, the hope is the same kind of thing. I was thinking about the, the work that you do and the fact that these are, they were once wild animals and we've somehow disconnected ourselves with the factories, with the way that we cut things up and rename it as meat and things. We've managed to disconnect ourselves from the those things that we love so much, which are wild animals and our pets. And you mentioned that, you know, these were all once wild animals. And I don't think people know interesting facts about how we've genetically, genetically modified animals to, to grow quickly, to grow really big. And hens, you know, hens used to lay about a dozen eggs a year, 10 to 12 eggs a year. And, um, and now they lay upwards of 300 a year. I mean, we have created them. We, we have built them into these machines and their bodies can't take it long-term. So I've known hens who have lived upwards of eight years, um, when they're not, you know, um, bred this way. Um, but hens who are, are bred this way are culled, which is the industry term for killed after 18 months, because they start producing fewer eggs because their bodies are just so spent. Unbelievable. This <laughs> yeah. is unacceptable. <laughs> Un unbelievable. It, it's right. Speaking of wild animals, uh, your, the second book that you did, Captive, 
um, is primarily zoo animals and and aquaria and, and things. And there was a, there was an image that caught me in there. There's a picture of a gorilla um, looking out at you. I think I still have, yeah. It, it's this gorilla that's turned. And when I saw the and looking out the glass, do you does it you know which one I'm referring to? It it, it struck me because the gorilla feels about the same age as as the one that Apollinaire is holding with such... Pickin. Her name yeah, is Pickin. Pickin. Yeah. yeah, Pickin. Did that cross your mind when you were taking this picture? Did Apollinaire mm-hmm. jump into your brain? I mean, it's interesting that... Oh, I love that, I love that you saw that. And it's really fun to talk with people about photography because we all see different things. That never crossed my mind. Um, you know, I sometimes think I know my, my photos by heart. And then five years later, someone points out the carrot hanging out of some animal's mouth and I never saw it. It's in, you know, it's in plain sight. So, so that's really neat. Um, the image of the gorilla looking through that glass at the zoo is there's eye contact. And if it's not a direct eye contact, it's close. You know, they're looking just past me or, or add something or in a way that is kind of melancholy and melancholy is a way that I would describe many zoo animals. And so shooting at zoos and aquaria are kind of interesting because you're standing there in the throngs of people who are all taking pictures you're all taking kind of similar pictures, but I stay a little longer and I try and compose things in such a way that captures how the animals, you know, might be feeling. Uh, I observe if they are pacing. I observe if they are going back to that dirty glass every 38 seconds exactly in the same sort of rote movements. And um, and are they looking at us? And I find that animals, whether they're a pig or a chicken or a gorilla, are looking at us humans and we always have the answers and they always have the questions. And the question seems to be to me, what, what's going on? What are you doing to me? How do I get out of here? I'm scared. And I think that's a really terrible legacy for us that animals, um, are, are so wary of us and what we are doing to them and what we're going to do to them next and so that gorilla behind the the glass the dirty glass i like the many animals i've met i I imagine them to be just wondering you know what the hell is going on here why are all these people coming and going and and i have been in here for so long especially if they were wild caught you know it's really unbelievable that we take animals who have known the wild like kiska the orca who's at marine land here in canada she's in that book as well and and uh, we take them and out of the wild and we put them alone. Like Kiska lives in ironically named Friendship Cove, but she's lived alone there for 11 or 12 years. It's really important for us to know these things. And it's also it also brings the journalism into photojournalism. It's important for us to uh, know what we're talking about, get information, do research and illuminate the images that we shoot with these really important stories. I'm going to leave it there only because I promised you that we cut this off because you're jumping on a plane very quickly here in a day or two for Zimbabwe, did you say? That's right. Yeah, for Zimbabwe. Because you, you're working on a new project in Africa, is that right? 
Yes. Um, Maybe before you go, can you tell us a little bit about it or is it secret? So uh, you can keep all of this. You don't have to edit any of this out. This is a, a typical question for us investigators. And we talk more about the work once it's finished. Uh, we don't want, you know, the general public to know that we're going somewhere to do investigations. And um, so I am going to Zimbabwe. I'm going to South Africa to work with some really amazing NGOs on um, building out campaign materials that they can use in the coming years. Um, sometimes when I travel, I work with locals. Sometimes I give workshops on how to take better images uh, because it's it's also really important for We Animals Media and I to build capacity and and mentor people in uh, in in doing the stuff that we do so that we have more people doing it. I'm really looking forward to the adventure of not photographing these horrible situations that I photograph, but building new friendships with people who go the extra mile and who care so much that they are willing to go to these places as a group and um, take these photos and tell these stories. Joe, thanks for sharing that. And and especially thanks for sharing your time. We should probably let you go and get back to packing. Any last thoughts before you go? Well, I'd love to actually um, sign off with a few lines that are in the hidden book. There is a poem that I wanted to include in the book by Shanti Deva, who was an 8th century Buddhist uh, scholar and philosopher and student. And for me, it sums up... Uh, I really relate. I really relate to this poem. And it's kind of like my prayer to the world, just as it was his prayer to the world. And it reads, may the frightened cease to be afraid and those bound be freed. May the powerless find power and may people think of benefiting each other. For as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, until then may I too remain to dispel the miseries of the world. Sounds like an eighth century writer knew you <laughs> or you've, you've been reincarnated. <laughs> anyway, hey, thank you for that. Thank you so much. We will, if, with your permission, um, we will reprint it in the blog so people can see those words. They are, it's a beautiful prayer. I would love that. We will indeed. Thank you so much. Safe travels. Um, Thanks. And, and let's do this again sometime. Lovely. Thank you for the invite. We're on. I want to thank Joanne for taking the time to join us on Talking Apes, especially since we pulled her away from the joys of packing for that very long flight to Southern Africa. You can see the pick and Apollinaire photo we discussed earlier in the podcast, along with several others in the blog accompanying this podcast on our website at talkingapes.org. There you'll also find a link to We Animals Media and to all the work that Joanne's done, books and other things. You've been listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Our conversations are with folks across this planet of the apes, writers, researchers, conservationists, and scientists. All get us closer to understanding who we are and why ensuring the survival of the other four great apes is the only way to ensure our own survival. I'd like to thank Talking Apes team, assistant producer Demel Zaban, and lead researcher Megan Lewandowski for their invisible work in making this podcast possible. And I would like to thank you, the donors and Patreon supporters who make Talking Apes possible through your generous support and the sharing of this podcast. 
If you appreciate what you hear here on Talking Apes and are interested in supporting us, you can do so via our website at www.talkingapes.org. Finally, I would like to thank all of those on the front line of Great Ape Survival. We hope through Talking Apes we're able to shine a light on the incredible selfless work you do every day to ensure great apes, primates, and their forest homes survive long into the future. I'm Jerry Ellis. For everyone connected to Talking Apes, thanks for listening.